everybody, this is Jeremy Lynch and Landon Harlan from Obu Interactive. You're listening to the Cases for Causes podcast, the show that looks at legal marketing with a purpose. Today, we're talking about human trafficking litigation with Stephen Babin and Christina Eide Toss of the Babin Law Firm in Columbus, Ohio. Stephen is managing partner for Babin Law, focusing on complex mass tort and class action matters throughout the country. He handles single event personal injury cases, including medical negligence and product liability claims. Christina is an associate attorney for Babin Law, representing human trafficking survivors in federal litigation against corporate hotel defendants. Today, we will discuss where human trafficking begins in the U.S., how to identify where human trafficking occurs, some of the most common fallacies surrounding human trafficking, and where corporate profits might be knowingly put before personal safeties. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. Steve, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit more about Babin Law, what it's all about, and a little background on yourself. Yeah, Babin Law is a relatively new firm, but we're pretty experienced in the mass tort area. I started this firm about four years ago. We primarily do mass torts, which means, you know, essentially we sue big companies that have hurt lots of people, a lot of pharmaceutical cases where there's bad prescription drugs or medical device cases. Now we're here today to talk about these human trafficking cases. Started the firm with, you know, a couple things in mind that I really wanted to accomplish. And one was I wanted to help people. That's something I've always wanted to do my whole life. I've always been moved when I see somebody who's taken advantage of, and I've always wanted to do something about that. And then two, you know, we wanted to hold companies accountable and we wanted to, you know, take them to the mat and fight with them. And that's really the other part of what we do and what I really enjoy doing. You know, I think that our firm has been really successful in building a name for itself in the the space and industry that we work. We've got lawyers and leadership and, you know, big cases all across the country that have been appointed by federal judges. We've also got a really diverse law firm here that we've been intentional about building where we've got a, you know, a group of people that are hardworking, that really care about the work that they're involved in, but they don't take themselves too seriously and can have fun too. We've got a, a kind of a startup culture almost at the law firm. We're just out of the garage feel, but uh, that's good because it means we work late hours and we work hard and we care about the work that we do and uh, we're determined to do uh, the best we can at it. Awesome. Sounds like this is going to be a really good conversation. Christina, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do for Babin? So right now at Babin Law, I'm working with human trafficking survivors in cases against hotels, holding them accountable for turning a blind eye to the trafficking that is happening on their properties. And basically, at the end of the day, reaping the benefits of the sex trafficking industry and contributing to the problem overall. And what really got me into this work as I was attending college and in law school is like working on a bunch of different human rights and injustice issues like human trafficking, like climate change and pollution, like war crimes. A common theme that I have seen is the lack of accountability for corporations and how involved in all these injustices they actually are. So being able to work on this case and being able to be a part of of a team at Babin Law that is dedicated to holding these corporations accountable and being in an environment where people are passionate and care about the survivors and about people experiencing injustices at the hands of corporations is really important. So really excited to be a part of Babin Law and, and the team accomplishing that. Nice, absolutely. Thank you. I did a little bit of research on this topic, just trying to prepare for our conversation as it's not your your typical type of litigation or a like a car accident case. 
And I asked some folks about human trafficking and to my amazement, you know, they really didn't believe a lot of that occurred in the United States. They thought it was a problem of other countries. So when it happens here, the question I wanted to ask you about is, can you shed some light on how it occurs and how, where it begins? Does it begin at our borders? It seems to be current in every state. Is it a domestic issue? Can you give us some background on, on really where the origination of human trafficking starts? Yeah, it's a domestic issue and an international issue. I got the same reaction that you did when I first started talking about this case to other people. What we have found is that reaction is dead wrong. This occurs in every town and every state and every part of the country. And certainly there are international crime syndicates that you think of when you think of maybe human trafficking and I don't know, Liam Neeson's taken or something. What we have domestically is something that's uh, just as bad. It's the same thing. It's just as egregious. And what you would think of when you think of it domestically as a pimp. It's not a pimp that, you know, finds someone who's already on the street trying to, you know, make money for drugs. It's a pimp that grooms young women uh, into these positions by, you know, a, a lot of different avenues. One of them is, you know, there's a Romeo pimp, and that's a pimp that goes and, you know, pretends like he's a boyfriend of a 15-year-old girl who's got uh, lots of struggles in her life already and has, uh, you know, maybe got no parents in the house or parents with problems in the house and, you know, all kinds of other issues. And this guy comes in as a savior type and then ends up taking her away from her family and trafficking her. Or it's a pimp that comes in and puts a job out on flyers and posters out in the neighborhood for jobs that pay thousands of dollars a week that are fake and kidnaps you and takes you and traffics you and forces you to have sex for money. Um, but this happens all over the place. It's organized. It's not just single people doing this. These are these are organized groups. It's intentional, and they do it in hotels, right? I mean, this is the primary place where trafficking occurs because the individuals that are going to buy sex for money are people that can afford it, number one, and people that are, they're not going to go uh, to uh, a trap house in a, you know, the most rundown side of the neighborhood, they're going to go to a hotel. It's a safe place to have a transaction like that for both parties. And I say safe place uh, in air quotes there, maybe a safe place for the person purchasing the sex, certainly not a safe place for our clients, right? It's a place where they're imprisoned. Everyone turns away from them, right? And looks away and, and watches this happen uh, in plain sight. So let me ask you a question about the places, because that was one, and I understand there's hotels. If you can give us more specifics on where the most common places that this type of thing occurs, where would those be? I mean, it's 98% in hotels. If, if you're talking about purchasing commercial sex, every once in a while it'll be in a house, truck stop maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it will be on the street, but even the people that are on the street end up in hotels really often. So it might be a you street walk, and if you've got someone that'll pay more money, you have a hotel room, and if, if not, you kind of continue to street walk, and that's all under the, the very close watch of a pimp and a crime sort of organization, whether it be a small one. And, and it's a, it's a high-profit business for, for the pimps. I mean, I think they make somewhere between, you know, they, some figures say they make $100,000 a year off each girl. Um, and then it's a high-profit business for the hotels, too, that make millions and millions of dollars for renting rooms for these purposes every night in pretty much every city across the country. The worst thing about it is it's so easy to recognize if you're a hotel. And Steve, following up on, on the hotel types, you know, I know you guys are in Columbus, Ohio, and <clears throat> outside the metro area, there's quite a bit of rural 
uh, landscape and you can drive up any number of highways or, or freeways and, and find a pretty cheap, almost, you know, what would be considered CD motel. Is there a range of price where, you know, for entrance into the hotel or motel, you know, this might happen more often, whether it's the high-end hotel in downtown Columbus, or if it's, you know, on the outskirts of town in, you know, a little highway motel. So, I mean, look, we've got a lot of cases and our, our evidence on this is anecdotal to a certain extent, right? But, you know, we do have cases in all 50 states, and I'm pretty sure my firm has more cases than anyone else in the country does. And I can tell you, based on the, you know, the sampling of information that we have, it occurs in all types of hotels. And it occurs in your probably little CD hotels, but for purposes of what we're doing at all our law firm for litigation, we're only suing the major corporations. We're suing about six or seven major hotel corporations. We're not suing the property management company if it's franchised. We're not suing a smaller motel. We're going after the big players. And the big players are uh, one, the ones that are responsible for delineating rules and policies and procedures to the boots on the ground. And two, the ones that are responsible for pushing the industry in the right direction. I think that some of the major, there's about six hotel corporations that own all of the hotel chains in, in the country. And some of them seem to be worse actors than others, but they're all, they're all on our map and they all have hundreds of cases uh, in, in our firm. So Steve, I know this may be a difficult question with these major billion dollar corporations, but can you tell us who you have observed that you feel may be ones who are violating or choosing to look the other direction when they are more than likely aware that human trafficking and sex trafficking is occurring? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, first of all, they're all choosing to look the other direction. And, and I can tell you that for one reason, which is they've implemented no policies and procedures whatsoever across the board from a corporate uh, level that would train employees to put them on notice about human trafficking occurring on their properties and then have checks and balances and audit systems for what to do. And, you know, I'll answer your question in a second on what hotels, but, you know, these hotels do audit you know, what happens on their properties to a finite degree of detail. They do things like look at the type of little creamers that you have for the coffee. And if you get it from Dairy Buds, you're fine. But if you get it from Mr. Jones's creamers, you're going to get dinged and ticketed and audited. And, and this is literally an example from a case. The wrong creamer types will uh, get you ticketed and audited. But with respect to something like human trafficking, God forbid they'd have to put a policy together that would be uh, followed and audited and utilized in that way. So that's what's happening across the board with respect to turning a blind eye. That's why we're suing the major corporations that own kind of all the underlying hotel brands. And those corporations would be Wyndham, IHG, Choice, G6, Hilton, Marriott, Red Roof Inn. What else do we have, Best Christina? Western. Best Western and Extended Stay are essentially the main ones that we're going after there. And of those, you know, the top kind of five ones, a huge segment of the market. When you're talking about a company like Choice or Wyndham, they've got 15 or 20 underlying brands that operate under the Wyndham or Choice umbrella, uh, all brands that you, you would know. They are huge, giant international companies with employees that can do things like audit the creamer system, but they can't implement a policy about human trafficking and how to observe it. And I think, like I said before, it is, it's not that hard to see. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. Yeah. And I think too, what makes it worse is that 
These companies have all signed on to pledges. They've made public relations statement. They've promised to solve this problem publicly. And at the end of the day, they're not actually taking any measures to prevent it. And when you really look at it, hotels and hotel staffs are really in the one of the best places to stop this problem because they are interacting with the victims. They are on the ground. They are observing the signs and they're doing nothing at the end of the day. And they're on the front lines of this problem. Yeah. And they see it happening in their lobbies and in their rooms. But at the end of the day, they're not taking any any steps to really mitigate the problem. And they just they're letting victims suffer over and over again and are really perpetuating this problem in this country, actually, I would say. One thing just before you guys jump in and do this just for purpose of in case a hotel happens to be listening. Okay. We understand that the law doesn't say you have to stop human trafficking, period. What the law says, at least with respect to the law we're using to sue these companies, is they can't profit from what they knew or should have known was trafficking. And what we're saying here is, look, because all these hotels turn around and tell us, well, it's not our responsibility to stop trafficking. And that's fine. You know, whatever. The law says what it says. But it's certainly your responsibility not to make millions and millions of dollars from trafficking. That's clear. That's what the law says. I just want to make sure that, you know, we, we, we say that because I, I hear this all the time from the other side about how it's not their job to stop trafficking, but it's certainly their job to stop collecting cash every single day as a result of trafficking. Absolutely. You bring some very good points as far as uh, what hotel staff can do, being on the front lines, having that interaction. Can you share with us what would be some signs that if there is a hotel staff member possibly listening or just a concerned citizen parent, what are some signs that the public can be aware of to possibly identify or at least raise the question to upper management if they believe something's going on so it can be stopped? So I'll have Christina run through some of the the, the red flags that are accepted and the the whole nonprofit world and the government sector on what are red flags of trafficking in the hotel industry. But let me just give you a hypothetical example, right? Guy in his, I don't know, 30s, 40s walks in with three or four girls that are 20 years old, buys hotel rooms and cash for extended periods of time, doesn't provide IDs for the girls, and then 20 or 30 men go in and out of each room every single day while that guy stands in the hallway and watches what happens. I don't care who you are. To me, if you're seeing 20 or 30 guys go in and out of a room every single day that are not guests of the hotel, that don't have to sign into the hotel, I mean, what do you think's happening? Wow, right. Christina, do you have more on that? Yeah, to, to kind of build off of that, lots of nonprofits like the Polaris Project, the Department of State, Ekpat, these signs have been well known for years and years and years now. So like some of the really common accepted ones are the women appearing abused, maybe having signs of bruising, maybe showing signs of malnutrition because they've, uh, like Steve had mentioned earlier, traffickers will withhold food. A lot of times they're not in control of a lot of their documentation, like IDs. The foot traffic in and out of the room is a big one. Some signs that the cleaning staff might notice are things like condoms being left behind in the trash or sex paraphernalia left in the room or drug paraphernalia left in the room. Other big ones are uh, when the victim is avoiding eye contact, is afraid to talk with people, and just generally like lacking control over where she's going to be or where she's allowed to be, what she's allowed to do. 
cash payments, paying for extended stays on a day-by-day basis, like being at the hotel and then extending it sporadically. And a lot of times too, in these situations, the victim and their trafficker will return to the same hotel over a year-long period or over a month-long period, and they'll be staying for multiple days at a time. So it'll get to a point when the hotel staff recognize them, have a relationship with them, might be involved, might be getting paid off to look the other way, might be customers themselves. Like These are all things that we see in these cases. And even if they're not getting paid off, guess what? If one trafficker is using that location or that hotel, I'd bet another one probably is too. So it's not the only shop that's doing business in that hotel, right? I mean, I can tell you here in Columbus that we have cases in all 50 states, but here in Columbus, if you want to go to what is probably a high trafficking area, uh, it, it would be 161 and uh, 71. And I mean, I see you shaking your head, right? Everyone knows that's where, where there's trafficking and, and commercial sex going on. And it's the same for all, all towns and neighborhoods and cities across the country. They know where stuff like that's happening and criminals know where stuff like that's happening too. And, and some of these signs might sound at first blush. Oh, well, you, you find condoms. Uh, certainly there's going to be condoms maybe uh, in uh, a hotel room. And maybe you want to put a graphic warning on some of this part of these podcasts here because uh, we had a client deposed recently, and it's not one or two condoms. Our client went through boxes of 100 condoms all of the time during a stay. If you find two condoms, that's one thing. If you find 100 of them, that's a different story, right? I mean, that's an entirely different story. So these are things that are kind of just so in your face sometimes to turn around and say, how could we have known? It's not our responsibility. It's too hard to ask us to get involved in a criminal enterprise. It's just crap is what it is. And it, it shouldn't be something that we as a society allow these hotels to get away with. It's plain and simple as and that. It's, it's especially true because a lot of these signs and red flags have been identified for over like 20 years now. Like the United Nations has, Department of Homeland Security has, and like various nonprofits have. And the best practices in the hotel industry have been well known. So like hotels have had time to learn these signs and implement protections into their policies and procedures to train their employees to identify them. So it's been a problem that's been known about for a really long time. Wow, that's shocking information that people could see that much evidence and turn a blind eye to it. In doing some research for the podcast, I was looking at some of the misconceptions that people have surrounding human trafficking whether it's gender specificity or physical control what are can you talk about some of the other misconceptions people might have uh, certainly yeah and i mean one of the misconceptions would be the degree of control that a pimp or a trafficker has over a victim and i can tell you that there are times where a victim isn't necessarily handcuffed by their trafficker or even with their trafficker and and they don't run away and we had a client deposed not that long ago and what that means is the lawyers on the other side get an opportunity to sit a witness down and ask that witness questions on the record there's a courtroom reporter about the case it's an evidence gathering process in a case and our client was deposed by a barrage of lawyers on the other side and one of the things they kept trying to make an issue in the case was why didn't you just run away why didn't you just run away and it really ticked me off honestly because for the lawyers they understand it on the other side they're just being you know lawyers on the other side and that's what they are but 
from a perspective of you know people in the regular everyday world uh, i don't think they understand that necessarily as well either and here's what happens you get someone who's 15 years old they probably have a, a broken home already they don't have any real good adult that they look up to in their life and they've got this pimp that comes in and pretends like they're their boyfriend and he is nice to him for a little bit and takes him around and takes him maybe to dinner and they fall in love with this guy right he's, he's this guy who's gonna change their whole life and they're traveling and they go to a hotel and then all of a sudden something happens where she needs to have sex with some random person in order for them to make it out of some situation that they just happen to find themselves in and she does it right and it kind of breaks her and it's terrible and she does it and then all of a sudden it starts to turn really dark and this girl who already had no family now has no phone and no access to her social media because her pimp's doing it. And if she doesn't now have sex with 20 or 30 guys and make enough money a night, beats her up over and over and over again and does things like controls her food when she's going to eat. And if she doesn't make enough money, she doesn't eat that night. And when somebody takes you out of your environment and has that much control over the things you're doing, and tells you things like, if you run away, I'm going to kill your parents, or I'm going to kill your sister, or I'm going to kill anybody that matters to you. And then I'm going to find you and kill you too. That's enough to scare somebody, right? You're in a, you're, especially if you're a vulnerable person, a young person in a situation where you don't know where you are, you're scared to death half the time, you're trying to make enough money for, for this person. So to sit there and uh, tell our client during this deposition that, you know, she was wasn't scared for her life or was weak for not running away is insane to me. And it's, it's, it was really just wrong, honestly, the way that it happened, but that's, that's the way this happens. And it, that's why it doesn't look like this pimp needs to be right next to the victim 24 seven. They have such a strong degree of control over them that they could be wherever. But if you really believe that your little brother is going to get murdered, if you walk away, probably not going to walk away. And what it, what it really boils down to too, at the end of the day, is traffickers will prey on vulnerability. So most survivors of trafficking come from like things like the foster care system, the LGBTQ community. They might be immigrants who where the traffickers withholding their documentation. So traffickers look for that vulnerability in a potential victim, and then they use psychological manipulation to get them to do what they want them to do. But coercion might not always look like beating someone or physically restraining someone. It can be like some of the examples Steve gave, withholding food. It might be, it might have to do with substance abuse and addiction. It might have to do with threatening family members. It might have to do with mental health. There are so many different ways it can manifest. And if the victim is a minor when it's happening, coercion doesn't even need to happen because the minors can't consent. So that's another really important issue too that people might not know about trafficking is if the survivor is a minor, then there doesn't even need to be any form of force because they can't consent. And, and Christina hit on a good one too there that I missed the substance abuse and addiction, right? So that in tandem with food deprivation. And if, if you've never heard of the psychological control you can have over somebody with food and water deprivation, you should look it up because it's, it's significant. But with drugs, you know, some, some pimps will pretend like they're great because they actually let the their victims keep some of the money, but they'll get them hooked on heroin and the victim will turn around and spend every single dime that they get to supposedly quote unquote keep if they're keeping some percentage of the money on those drugs. And it's just another degree of control that the pimp has over the victim. And these guys aren't idiots. They know what they're doing. They're sophisticated about it. There are rules in this game, uh, in this kind of underworld of, of criminality that is, you know, 
finite and specific as any rule book you've ever seen. I mean, there's Robert's Rules of Order for for pimps and in this country, and they follow those rules and they have you know rules amongst themselves too and how they can operate you know together or at least side by side in ways that work. And it's not you know some Yahoo that just decides to do this one time. I mean, this is a sophisticated criminal enterprise. So this is a question for both of you. In what ways do you see these larger corporations putting these profits over people's safety and why are they doing it? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we know that they're, they're at least what they're doing is they're just collecting cash every day for rooms uh, that are being rented for purposes of trafficking. And the reason they're not doing anything about it is it's a profits over people thing, but it's a double money pit. Number one, it's, and it's a PR nightmare, but it's a double money pit because of this. First, you have to train your people which costs lots of money. And then second, you have to train your people to turn down millions of dollars in revenue. So here's the, here's the proposition to a corporation that only cares about money. First, admit you have a problem, which is a PR problem for them too, a PR nightmare for them. Now, steps one and two are train your employees about all of this, which is incredibly costly, and then two, turn away millions of dollars. Now, that's fine. It costs them money. I feel so bad for the corporations, but I really don't because it's, it's an issue that's a lot more important than money, right? It's an issue about human dignity and uh, the values that we find important in this country and uh, that we have humans have found to be important since the beginning of civilization and protecting those rights. So that's why they're not doing anything about it. It certainly doesn't mean that they shouldn't be doing anything about it. And when we talk about holding corporations accountable, what we really mean is hitting them where it hurts, which is their pocketbook. Holding a corporation accountable means making them pay money for what they did that was wrong. And that's, to me, has been the only thing that seems to make a corporation squirm and, and change the way it's acting. Let's say for right now, if someone is online and does hears this podcast or a snippet of it, and they believe they may be a victim or know someone who could be potentially a victim, what would you share, Christina, that they can use as some some working knowledge that they could put in place to, to create some kind of plan or hopefully start to unwind the process? So I would recommend if you feel, if you believe you might be experiencing this situation or you know someone that might be experiencing this situation, if you are currently unsafe and you are currently subject to the control of a trafficker and need rescue, the best thing to do is to contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is 888-373-7888 or the Rescue America Hotline, which is 713 322 8000. And these these two hotlines specialize in reporting tips of human trafficking and also rescue operations. So if you are a survivor and you are in need of those resources, they will come find you and pull you out into a safe situation. So that that is the first step I would recommend taking. And then if you're a survivor of human trafficking or if you're going through this, I think the first thing you need to know is that you are important. You are not alone. There are people that care about you and are working on this for you. And there is a way out. There is a path to forgiveness of yourself and also recovery. There is, There are people offering resources for you, depending on what you need for housing, employment, mental health. There are a lot of nonprofits and agencies working on this issue, probably in your local community. Uh, so there are people fighting for you. There are people on your side and there are people ready to support you. And there are also options like civil lawsuits, criminal prosecutions that you can consider. 
when you're in a safe situation and out of your out of the control of a trafficker or anything like that. So there are people working on this for you and you're not alone. Yeah. And you know, just that you matter and people care about what's happening. And there are people out there that don't want this to happen and spend their lives trying to make it not happen. And they're certainly sad that it happened to you, but that people care, right? I think that's important for everyone mm-hmm. to know. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are on a mission to improve public safety and hopefully make more people aware how commonplace this is and that it needs to stop and it shouldn't happen in a place like the United States. And we appreciate you for that so much. One more thing too, just if you're a normal everyday person and you don't think this is happening here in the United States, I think one of the best things to do is to learn about it. There are tons of resources out there. There are lots of nonprofits and government resources working on this issue. Do a Google search, look and see what's in your local community, learn the signs and the red flags of trafficking because you can make a difference. You can help identify it. And just being knowledgeable about the issue and telling people about it is really important. I want to thank both Stephen and Christina for joining the podcast today, and thank you both for helping victims of human trafficking who might not otherwise be able to help themselves. To find out more about Stephen, Christina, and Babin Law, check them out on Facebook or Instagram, or visit their website at babin.lawyer. I'd like to thank everyone out there for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Cases for Causes and you'd like to help support the podcast, Smash that subscribe button, share it with others, post it on social media, or leave a review or rating. To catch all the latest from Obu Interactive, you can follow us on Instagram at Obu Interactive or visit us at obuinteractive.com. Thanks again, and until next time, work passionately, live peacefully.